This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 20 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is speaking with people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. Thank you for being a little bit personal and vulnerable as well. I saw a really great opportunity with the bullying because so many people are contending with that, not just in a workplace, but at school and in their personal life. I, I'm not interested in telling the same story and over and over again because my audience will get bored. So if we can have a slightly different take on it every time, that's always valuable. That's the voice of my guest this week, Stan Peake. He's the owner and founder of Insight Performance Coaching, based in Calgary, Canada. Meeting Stan after one of his Alberta Treasury Branch presentations could not have been more timely. I often get requests from my community on how to grow an existing business, what's involved in that growth and where might the pitfalls be on that journey. With experience in running seven businesses, Stan is no wilting violet when it comes to putting the cards on the table. If you need someone to not only guide you, but also to lift you up when you need lifting up, then Stan is the key to your success. And more importantly, to your company's growth. I start first by asking Stan how he managed to get his ATB gig. You know, I've got a number of friends that work at ATB, either in business development or communications or coaching. So I have actually previously worked with a lot of colleagues and basically all of them have nothing but great things to say about A, the culture of ATB, and also just what ATB does for Albertans as well as entrepreneurs. Being an entrepreneur and a coach myself, um, that resonated with me. And so I just reached out to the ATB Entrepreneur Center to see if there was ways that we could kind of combine since we serve the same market. You know, that's a great summing up of ATB. I think you're absolutely right. They helped me in my business when I first started out uh, two or three years ago. And it was amazing. You would go around all the other banks in the province, but ATB always had a, a listening ear and they try to find a way of supporting you and getting you up and running. And I have to say big thumbs up for them as a bank and also for them running the entrepreneur scheme as well. So um, tell me a little bit about your business, first of all. It's Insight Performance Coaching, is that correct? That's right. Basically, we do business and executive coaching. The slight difference would be business coaching is typically coaching for entrepreneurs, business owners, and smaller businesses. And it's almost always focused on business and revenue growth. You know, what systems do I need? How do I find the right team? How do I make my first hire? How do I promote my first manager? Those sorts of early stage challenges and, and revenue, consistent revenue and revenue growth is almost always among them. So it's, it's a lot of focus on business development, sales and those systems, as well as the psychology that goes behind, you know, being effective of customer service and acquiring more customers. Uh, executive coaching is really more for larger businesses where you're dealing with more complex challenges. Just coaching a CFO recently uh, and their company, which was $11 billion in top line revenue, is going through a massive shift into, you know, say, going public. So there's a lot of those very different stage challenges. 
and executives, maybe you're solving fewer problems for them, but those problems are usually more niche, perhaps larger in scale. So business coaching, you're trying to solve every problem that leads to growth, but executives typically reach out when they can't overcome one specific problem. Got you. That's really great that you define the two because sometimes that gets very confusing between the business and the executive. Uh, Could we stay with the business side? First of all, if somebody is looking to start a business and you did allude to some of the key areas that are quite a stressor for people that are new to business or being entrepreneurs and trying to launch business. I mean, cash flow is king. You know, you really, really can't do a lot with that cash flow. But what are some of the other challenges that entrepreneurs have got to be aware of before starting a business? So the biggest challenges that people are going to experience right away would be obviously, like you said, cash flow. I couldn't agree more. Cash flow is king. And there's a difference between cash and profitability, which is important for entrepreneurs to realize because most of us don't have a finance background. You know, a lot do. And, and there's a lot of great companies, which we can share with later, that, that you can borrow that expertise. Heck, I'll say one now, Amplify Advisors. They're also local. Uh, we've worked with them in the past. I know their founders. They're fantastic. It's a great way you can, in more bite-sized pieces, bring on some of that expertise. However, a lot of entrepreneurs have an idea or they come from a certain industry and then they get to owning their own business. So understanding the difference between profit and cash flow is important. But one of the other early challenges is going to be bottlenecked, you know, having to wear every hat and not having enough time at the end of the day. So it's like most entrepreneurs, they do a little of this, little of that, little of this, there's a fire burning over there, and they just get so spread thin. It's exhaustive. And one thing I try to teach entrepreneurs early is you're never done. In fact, there's no such thing as being done until you sell your business or close your business. So you have to make peace with prioritizing and hitting the most important stuff and then living to fight another day. You know, that's, a again, a really good point you bring up. Being an entrepreneur myself, I found being spread thin was totally exhausting mentally and physically. And actually can get you right down, can it? It can get you very depressed because you feel as if you're not winning any of the battles. What are some of the strategies to catch that breath, get yourself into a cadence and a rhythm, and then to start to tackle the priorities? What would you say is the first thing to do? Just basic things to get started on that. What would you suggest? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. It's a great question. And you know, the, the way I'd answer that, David, is to make sure that people can take a step back because your innate response is going to be, oh my gosh, I'm all in. I just put the farm on this. You know, I, I, I've all my money's here. I got to make money quick. So the natural instinctive response is going to be to respond, which by definition is reactive. And it's very important that businesses just take that extra time and intention to be proactive. And what do I mean by that specifically? Instead of sell, 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 and try to get past the proof of concept stage, spend time to be determinant on what the concept actually is. The way I put that is, before we go to market and just go busy, flat out prospecting, understand what the DNA of your business is. Most people that I've coached, and this is talking about more than 150 businesses, so it's not a small sample size, Most businesses, most entrepreneurs I've coached actually find a way to make money at the expense of bypassing the larger opportunity. Interesting. Tell me more about that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they, they get busy with a product market fit. Oh, we're getting sales over here. We better double down. But the DNA of a business 
is your cultural ideology and your ideal customer avatar married? Right. Okay. So, so breaking those concepts down a little further, the vision, the purpose, the mission, and the values. Your 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 purpose is like, why are you starting this? And if it's just a way to make money, chances are you won't. Unless you're a late stage entrepreneur, you know, you've been through the ups and downs several times. And even that experience is not a guarantee. Personally, I'm in for seven businesses and I'm still making mistakes on my own dime as much as I'd love to say otherwise. So it's, it's really important to understand that you need a deeper purpose, something that is a must, something that's too important to quit. Because if you start a business to make money, and it's not making money, then your very purpose is going to dictate strategically, pull that money out and put it somewhere else where it will generate cash. So the purpose has to get to the level of profound. Usually, it's some sort of adversity you've experienced, which has left a bit of an emotional scar and a pull towards a greater cause. Or there's a problem you find in an industry you're passionate about, and you don't know why it, it exists. Think of Uber. The guy, it was, could, didn't have to be life-saving. It could be, I'm sick and tired of waiting for a cab. I wish I could push a button on my phone. No one else did anything about it, so he did. The purpose has to get profound, and the vision, where are we going, has to be profound because the purpose tends to drive the founder, co-founders, early-stage startup team. But the vision of where we're going is how you galvanize the efforts of a growing team. It's not just comp and benefits. It's like, we do important work. This is why we do it. And this is where we're heading. Look how exciting that is. Well, you, you've distilled that right then because often as not as business entrepreneurs, we say, oh yeah, that will make loads of money. Great profit margin on that. And it's all about the sales, 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 which is where I come from. But the one thing I liked about what you said and, and some of your notes on, uh, on your website, your LinkedIn profile was grow a business when you're not motivated by money. Talk a little bit more about that. It goes right back to what we're talking about because uh, if, if you are motivated by money, fantastic. Then you've got what you, I call your currency. Currency, just let's talk about motivation. And so for some people, their currency is currency and they just want to get rich, which that doesn't make them bad people. Those people might want to make lots of money because their true currency is freedom. That's a lot of entrepreneurs. They want to spend time with you know their families, things like that. For a lot of other entrepreneurs, their currency is not currency, and they have everyone has limiting beliefs about lots of things. You might have limiting beliefs about your capabilities as an entrepreneur. You might have limiting beliefs about your capabilities in sales, and you might have limiting beliefs about money and your relationship with money. One of those beliefs might be that money is evil, and so to want money for the sake of money is inherently wrong. I, I've coached you know, some real devout Catholics have had this challenge. It is important that we realize that money's not evil. Money is neutral. What you do with money is either positive or negative, good or evil. And so if money itself is not your currency, we just said at the very top of the hour, cash flow is king. So we need cash because cash is oxygen for any business. Cut off oxygen, we starve. But how do we get there? Well, we all have our own currency. For me, I'm very competitive. Anyone that's known me for a while knows that I am extremely competitive. And I'm not talking about competing against you, David. I'm talking about internal. Like, I'm not okay with being just okay. 
I'm not okay with being average. I'm not okay with being above average about the things that matter. Now, I'm way below average certain things. If you've ever heard me sing, and a few of my friends and my wife certainly have, I'm way below average there. I don't have a musical bone in my body. So when I say I'm not okay being above average, I don't think I'm better than anyone else. But there's a few areas as, as an entrepreneur, as a husband, as a father, as a coach, I'm not okay being average. I'm not okay being above average. I'm not content until I'm world-class in those areas. So the competitiveness is my currency and I'll do things from that point of view that other people would shy away from. That's what I need to tap into. And so I need to align my business's need to make money with my need to be world-class in those areas. So for instance, my, in my office upstairs, I've got a list of KPIs, key performance indicators, you know, my metrics, and I track everything. So my competitiveness, like how many sales opportunities are there this month? You know, what's revenue this month? How many, you know, uh, just what are client results? Things like that. If I'm competitive, then I want to do better than last month. And if I just align the key performance indicators to keep my business thriving with what fuels me, then I'll do the right thing, even if I'm not motivated by, say, making money. What I'd like to ask you off the back of that, is it quality or quantity when it comes to setting your business up in sales? What would you believe in? What's your kind of perspective on that? Great question. And it's both. Some people would say, you know, business is a numbers game. Sales is a numbers game. And it's not wrong. But here's the thing. I work for you, David. You're, uh, I'm a sales guy. I work for you. And I'm going to give you my all. And if I show up to work and I'm like, oh, man, I got to call a bunch of prospects today. Do you want quantity? You don't want me making 100 calls like that. Now, if I come in and I say, David, talk to me. Tell me about your business. Tell me what you love about your business. Tell me what's holding you back. What's the challenge? Where can we go together? Let's make this happen. Would you say that one call like that would be better than 100 calls that I'm just going through the motions? So upfront, quality beats quantity. But at the end of the day, why not have both? Why not put ourselves in the optimal state where we're focused on helping customers? We love what we do. We're not just in it. We don't see our potential customers as walking commissions. We actually, this goes back to that DNA of the business, we have a purpose and a vision and a client avatar, an ideal customer avatar that we deeply care about. And if we really care about them and have a profound purpose, we are going to be just doing everything in our power to create as much value for them as possible. That's the start that creates quality. Then if we're driven and if we have uh, coach, say internal coaching, we coach ourselves, you know, great leaders really getting the best out of their teams. Then you've got a team who's putting great quality in and they're doing it at scale. Quality plus quantity leads to better outcomes. And I will say that uh, in addition to insight performance coaching, I'm also a co-founder in a company called FSQ Consulting. And with FSQ Consulting, my business partner, one of five, one of four business partners, Lee Cassells, Lee and I teamed up to, uh, to co-write with our friend Catherine Brownlee, How to Sell in Any Economy. It ended up becoming a number one bestseller. 
based on the principles we just discussed. And now Lee and I have just launched the inaugural one day challenge. It's already sold out. And what that is, is we go through the psychology and the strategy of helping entrepreneurs and salespeople putting the best quality and the best quantity to their sales efforts and to see what they can accomplish in one day. Phenomenal. And and this is not a sales plug. It's already sold out. What I'm saying is the reason this is a thing, the reason this exists is because of just truly what's capable. Uh, I've talked to a lot of salespeople, a lot of entrepreneurs who only eat what they kill. You've got to make sales or you don't eat. Some of those people are reaching out to two to five prospects a day, which doesn't sound very high. And that's above, I would say, a lot of entrepreneurs. I've talked to true, you know, successful salespeople who reach out to up to 25 prospects a day. Now, that's a lot. My business partner, Lee Cassells, and there's a reason why he's the best at this. When we just got rid of everything else and he had one job and he focused on it, high quality and high quantity, he was able to reach out to 629 prospects in one day. Wow, that's significant. Absolutely significant. And I share that because Lee inspires me and I'm trying to chase someone. Remember, I'm competitive. Of course. But I also share that so that other people can hear what's possible. If you think about the, you know, any level of human achievement, it's impossible until someone does it, right, David? Correct. Absolutely. It took decades. It took decades. The whole human race, well, the whole human race, but the, in the world of sports, everybody was focused and obsessed about the four-minute mile. Is that possible? Is it possible? It was decades until someone finally broke the four-minute mile. Roger Bannister, absolutely. Roger Bannister, exactly. Do you remember how long it was for the second person to break the four-minute mile? It took, I think from memory, it took another five years or six years or maybe 10. I can't remember. No, it was a matter of weeks. Oh, was it? There you are. Sorry. No, and it, it, but, but here's the thing is, it, that's the fascinating thing. Because when Bannister ran a mile in less than four minutes, then anybody else who said it's not possible had to change their narrative. And when you change your narrative, when you change what you believe to be possible, and you must accept that this is possible, then you got two other choices. How bad do I want it? And how am I going to get there? Once someone proves something's possible, then all you have left, if you're truly driven, is change my strategy. And when people say, I've tried everything, no, you haven't. If you've tried everything, then everybody would be reading your book and people would be paying you for consulting. So when people think they've tried everything, they're needing to do two things. Change their psychology, change what they're focused on, what they're looking for, and then change their strategy, how I'm getting there. And a quick aside to that, that right now, you look at the fact that you and I are filming this, you know, in May of 2021, we're still in a pandemic that is decimating a lot of businesses. And that is real. And that's, that's, you know, it's, I have a lot of empathy for that. And because of those reasons, entrepreneurs need to be focused on opportunity, not on challenges. We need to deal with our challenges. We can't have our head in the clouds but we need to be focused on opportunity because what you focus on grows. If we're focused on our problems, we're going to see more problems and they're going to seem more severe. If we're focused on opportunities, we'll find them even if no one else does. 
And that doesn't mean it's a slam dunk home run, but that means we might have a competitive advantage where everyone else has stopped looking. I love what you just summed up there. And that's really inspiring words. And I love the fact that you indicate that, you know, our boundaries are where our limitations are, the ones that we put on ourselves, nobody else. But I wanted to pick up on something about coaching yourself. And that's really important. And this is what I wanted to do for the listeners. If you're an entrepreneur, you've been trying to get your business really kind of up and running for the last two or three years, because they say it's a good four or five years before business really gets its momentum. And you're really stuck. You know, you're getting up on a Monday morning and you're thinking, gosh, I phoned all these prospects. I'm not getting any phone calls back. I've done all the marketing as per the books. You know, I've done the social media. I just feel as flat as a pancake. I just do not know where I'm going to get more energy to start the day off this week. What's the three-point step in your mind to get your motivation up, to get your enthusiasm, to get your confidence back? What would you suggest? Oh, I love it. Great question. And we both know there's probably a lot of people that are just hanging on an answer because they can experience that and relate and they are right there. So the first thing is start at the start and that's start in the morning. What's your morning routine? When we are in a routine that is flat, when we are plateaued, you got to break it down to your routine. Am I waking up, hitting snooze, you know, pouring a coffee, reading my email and slowly getting about the day? Or am I waking up and attacking the day? Now, I work out first thing in the morning. That doesn't mean that everyone else has to. And they certainly don't have to do my workout. They could do yoga. They could stretch. They could go for a walk. Anything because their mental state, our our mental and, and just psychological state, the fastest pathway to influence that is our physical state. So going for a walk lifting weights, running, swimming, biking, doing yoga, anything that moves the body and gets the blood pumping is going to release endorphins. That's mood. It's also going to increase the speed of our blood flow. And what a lot of people don't realize is that exercise increases the rate of neurotransmission. We, our brain is actually functioning at a higher level of megahertz. And so we are actually smarter through exercise. That's a pretty good way to start your day especially on a Monday, which sets the tone for the week. Monday's the hardest day to get up and do it. I was exhausted this morning, still went up, went for a run. You know, it was like two degrees, by the way. I mean, we know Calgary's not super warm at, you know, prior to 7 a.m. Regardless, is start, with the, start at the start, build a better routine. Your morning routine, and there's not one great answer. The answer is to know yourself, and your morning routine is, has to be designed to reverse engineer your optimal state. How do you get up? You know, don't be that person who has to make those calls like this. Be the person who maybe doesn't become a tidal wave. If your energy is up here, you can always do some breathing exercises to regulate. But the morning routine has to reverse engineer the ideal version of you. That's how you begin your day. The second thing is to look at your priorities and do they fit? which of course you need a, uh, you know, a litmus test for how they fit. And really with that, I would say, go back to the DNA of your business. Why did you start this? Who do I serve? What is the value I create for them? Put another way, what's your value proposition? And, and hint, spoiler alert, your value proposition is not your products and services. Your value proposition is also not the features and benefits that your product or service creates. Typically, our value proposition is the outcome we create for our audience. 
That has nothing to do with the products and services. So what is the outcome that I create for the people that we coach or that we consult in our businesses? It's momentum. It's results. It's growth. It's positivity. It's, it's hope. So that's the outcome. That's what I sell. Now, the, the, the method to do that, the platform, the medium is coaching. So if I'm selling coaching, oh, I'm a better coach than, I don't tell anyone I'm a better coach than anyone else because that's for the client to decide. All I can speak about is my lived experience, who I'm focused on helping, and then the credentials and all those other things and past successes that have gone into fueling that. Same with a product or a service. You know, uh, look at yogurt is an interesting one. When, we, when our value proposition is not super clear, we find a point of difference, even if it's a distinction without a difference. I forget what yogurt brand it was, but it's a commercial featuring 10 billion LKCI. No one knows what the hell that is. It's a number that's a high number that's one specific microbe that has to do with good gut health. That's the value prop. Well, I mean, someone else could take a different angle on taste. Someone else, uh, you know, a Greek yogurt is taking you to have an experience. So those are three different value propositions in a physical product consumable that I would say is largely commoditized. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Stan Peake. Next, I wanted to ask him about his family background and how bullying at school affected his future life in a positive way. I was a skinny little dude who uh, was getting bullied, and that had a lot to do with where I've come to. Um, backing up, because you asked about the folks, uh, this is why, I mean, I'm happy to shout out companies like ATB and, and you know, Amplify Advisors and, and people like Catherine Brownlee, because I was born in Calgary. I did move away, and I do go away for work a lot, uh, pandemic notwithstanding. But I was born in Calgary. My parents, Steve and Donna, were both born in Calgary. Uh, three of my four grandparents were born in Canada, two in Alberta. My, uh, my great-grandmother used to run the bar in Ontario. Uh, if someone drank too much, she was the one to throw them out. Um, she wasn't a Scots or Irish background, any chance. No, I, Peak is an English name. Uh, oh, but, but we are a Heinz 57 because there's, I think there's some French, there's... Uh, there's a lot of Ukrainian jokes out there. Any Ukrainians out there will know. Well, the ultimate Ukrainian joke, by the way, those jokes are usually not complimentary in nature. The ultimate Ukrainian joke is that we might not even be Ukrainian. We don't even know. I got to take one of those DNA tests. Uh, but my parents, you know, they were awesome. Uh, the greatest gift my parents gave me, besides just a ton of love um, and discipline, a good balance, was I grew up with no dysfunction that was abnormal. You know, like I was, and this is why I talk about average, because I grew up to be average, which is actually a gift that I got to thank my parents for. You know, I'm not a silver spoon kid, and a lot of those flop, by the way. And I also didn't have any extreme adversity growing up. Now, sometimes people with extreme adversity, they become massive successes because they're running away for, from something the rest of their lives. And they got two choices go crush it or give in to drugs, alcohol, whatever. So my parents gave me every opportunity 
to take advantage of everything or nothing, which is a recipe for average. I wasn't running towards anything or away from anything. But the gift that that gave me was I got to go figure things out on my own. I screwed up lots. I learned a lot, did some things well. And now I'm trying to do a few things very, very well. The rest, like I say, I'm perfectly comfortable with the fact that I'm a terrible singer. Used to love the rock and roll lifestyle, but uh, I don't belong on stage with an instrument. I belong on stage in a conference. Uh, no, I get that totally. I'd, I'd love to talk about the bullying if you don't mind me digging a little yeah. bit deeper on that, because that's so much part of people's lives, especially our age range in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, you know, we just have to either stand up for ourselves or be beaten up, you know, either mentally or physically. When somebody's been, you know, exposed to bullying, be it in a workplace, in a school, in their personal life, how easy or how difficult is it to grow from that and to leave that behind and to be able to compartmentalize that in your life and to be able to lead a successful life? You know, here's a great, it's such a great discussion and thank you for going there. And I, I'm probably going to, you know, this is a very polarizing topic, let's face it. And so there's probably a few people that are not going to like what I have to say. Um, but that's okay, because you know, it's 2020 what, you certainly don't have to agree with everybody, live and let live. There's no right or wrong here. And, and I think it's highly subjective. And again, we're going back, like you said, to the 70s or 80s, you know, when my bullying uh, occurred, let's call it the early 80s. So I was in, you know, I probably was in kindergarten or grade one and my bully was in grade six. So there's no, there's no way you're winning that one physically. And I got to say that we grew up in a rougher part of Calgary. I was so excited when my parents said we're moving. There was a, a, a rash of crime in our neighborhood and it was finally time to leave. Uh, one of those was my fault, by the way. I was playing, I went for a bike ride, opened the garage door, probably only left it open for about an hour. But when I came home, all of my dad's tools had been stolen. Sorry, dad. So, you know, there's little things like that. But when we finally moved, then I was so excited just to be free of that experience and bully. And this is grade three. And it was the first day at a new school. Grade three for me would have been, you know, mid 80s, early 80s, mid 80s. So again, um, I, I don't use this word. It's a terrible word, but I'll just say it uh, because this is what experienced first day of school. Picture the bad Miami Vice, you know, the fashion that was at that time. Wearing this shirt and it said beach club. And the guy ahead of me in line waiting to go into school on the first day turns around and says beach club, more like beach club fag. And that's how uh, my new school began. And it was pretty much every day for the next, what, uh, three years where it was just, you know, teased at lunch, picked on, that kind of stuff. And so long way of saying that in answer to your question, if you've been bullied, and I mean really bullied, then you carry that for life. You know, here I'm, you know, I'm in my mid-40s and I still carry that, not in a way that I cry myself to sleep, not in a way that, um, you know, I feel inferior or any of those things. I'm an extremely confident person. But even today, I do a lot of strength training. And for me, physical power is still innately connected back to feeling powerless at that age. So there's a reason why I don't need to be 230 pounds to be an executive coach, but I still do a lot of strength training because physical power is empowered for me because of that backstory. So, you know, and going back to how I dealt with it, junior high, I found my third bully. And at that point, I just made a decision that it was enough. And this kid was a little smaller than me, but he kind of picked up on what everything else was going on. Everybody just saw me as a target. 
And so I kicked his ass at lunch hour in front of everybody. And that was the end of bullying. Is that parenting advice? No. But would I tell my kid not to do that? It wouldn't be my first resort. You know, use your words, tell a teacher, that kind of stuff. But eventually, everybody has to be able to defend themselves. In some way, shape, or form, there's still the law of the jungle. It doesn't matter. A transgender guy, girl, it doesn't matter who you are or who you bully is. You need the capability verbally, intellectually, and or physically to deal with those challenges or you'll be bullied your entire life and then you might on, be on a campaign of cancel culture. So you got to deal with it. Yeah, I love what you just said there. You didn't key in on the strength to resist or the strength to rise up. It's the capability. And I love that. That's the first time I've ever heard that. How do, how do people achieve that capability in your mind? I know one way was you got yourself stronger physically and that yeah. helped mentally. And that gave you the confidence to stand up. But how, if you or somebody else is a different type of personality, not necessarily into the, you know, the, the weight training or building yourself out physically, how can you achieve some of the capability that you talked about? It's a great question. And, and so, you know, you, you could use, you know, martial arts training where someone who's, if you're at a physical disadvantage, you could still win. You could use someone's strength and size against them. You could also use humor. I think brilliant that there are some people that are funnier than I am out there. Very few people are funnier than I am when it comes to dad jokes. Let's just say that. But regardless, the few people out there that are funnier than I am can use humor as a tactic. And I don't mean insulting the other person. That might be a way. They could take pokes at themselves first. If you expose your own flaws and make fun of them first, what does a bully have left? And if you're funnier than the bully, then pretty soon people aren't laughing at you. They're laughing with you, laughing at yourself. And that's someone who brings energy, positivity, light. That's the kind of person people want to be around. And what does a bully have left to take away from that person? By the way, bullies don't bully a zero. That's really important for people to hear. A bully doesn't gain anything by suppressing someone who's viewed to be nothing. Bullies only approach someone with clear and obvious inherent value. Because if they take that value away, then they feel lifted. They feel like they've gained power over someone. So bullies pe bully people who they feel threatened by. So that would be the other piece of advice is find out why someone's bullying you. You might ask. That might get your ass kicked. Who knows? But you might also do some reflection. Is it that you're generally likable? Is it that you're a super nice person? Are you hilarious? Is, whatever it is, there's a reason the bully is bullying you. So your pathway to healing and to a solution might be sped up by spending time inwards and realizing what gift you're bringing to the world that that bully is envious of. Those are great words, Stan. I mean, I love the way that you just broke that down and gave people lots of different strategies to cope with that because that doesn't just apply to the, the school playground. It applies to the workplace as well. That's the thing, isn't it? About having those conversations, forging links with somebody who you're very frightened of, but maybe ask them, tell me about your life. You know, that's a scary question. Tell me about your life when nobody's been interested in that bully ever before because all they see is this aggressive, you know, physically and mentally aggressive person. So maybe by diffusing the situation, say, hey, talk to me. Tell me about you. What, what was your life like? What, what happened to you in your past? Because that is amazing and that can break people down, isn't it? And, and at a very young age, that's probably going to go over their head. Uh, at, a, at a later age, it absolutely could. But at a young age, you might ask that bully, 
around no one else. Do you want to hang out after school? Because when the bully has the fans around, they got to act the part. Yeah. But when you can catch that person one-on-one and say, David, you want to hang out after school? Like, that's an approach that most people don't think of. And that's where you find someone at their most vulnerable moment and say, here's a hand. I'm willing to be your friend. It's a brave person that does that, but the results can be absolutely amazing. And you're right, yeah. I want to find out something before time moves on. Who's been your biggest inspiration or inspirations in life? Who are the people that have influenced you? I I think that's such an important area to cover, and there's been a number of them. And I think it's important that people realize that we should choose our inspirations from multiple walks of life. My parents were the first, even my younger brother, Scott, he he was a guy that inspired me. Um, After the bullying and those kinds of things, I went down a path of hanging around the wrong people. And, you know, he was making better decisions than I was. I was hanging around the wrong people, getting into some trouble. And he was really worried about me and cared about me. And he actually threatened to rat on me to my parents. And it was one of the best things anyone could ever do. That was the love. Like I could beat him up. I was his bigger brother. And he threatened to tell my parents on me. But that was because he was worried about me. And I was like, just that, that was a talk about bravery. That was amazing. My late grandfather uh, on my mom's side, Will Sawyer, my son, his middle name is Sawyer. And Will was one of just the best men I've ever met. And I, I, that, that I'll be able to say till the day I die. One of the most patient men, one of the most ethical men, hilarious. That's where I'd love to say I get my sense of humor from. He was funnier than I was, but just, just a great overall guy that you would hold a standard and say, this is what a man looks like. Not like toxic, you know, masculinity. This is what a good man looks like who does the right thing in all situations. Um, then there's my professional mentors starting even early as a football coach, Joe Stambini, Matt Young, who's actually a business partner now, who's my chief professional mentor, you know, John Matone and Marshall Goldsmith, my coaching mentors. I've had so many, I'm sure I've lit, I've forgotten many on this list. Uh, Gene Smith, a guy who's just been a tremendous mentor as a leader. Uh, Marilyn Taylor, who's taught me so much about leadership at the Royal Roads University. I'll stop there, but you get the point. There's been a long list of people that I've been fortunate enough and intentional enough to learn from. That's great. And you alluded to your brother, Scott. Do you have any other brothers or just the one brother? Just the one brother. Yeah. So there's, uh, yeah, my parents have me on purpose and they have two boys. And Scott was the happy mistake, eh? That's right. What does he do, by the way, your brother? Uh, he's, a, he's a brilliant finishing carpenter. Yeah, he's got such an eye for detail. And just, I think most guys have this like, you know, innate love to build stuff. And uh, I wish that's another thing I do well below average. <laughs> there we are. We can't be great at everything. Well, listen, I wanted to sort of steer us back to the business. How long have you been in the business for, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, no, I've been an entrepreneur for 23 years now. Um, in terms of coaching people, that's uh, six years. And so really, it was after getting bought out in my second business, my business partner and I were bought out and through a merge. And I just kind of went through this soul funk. But now uh, my coaching business is six years in and just coming up on a year with FSQ Consulting. I also have a few other businesses that uh, I, I'm really an advisor in. But, but yeah, my full-time focus is really FSQ Consulting and Insight Performance Coaching. And as a coach, six years. Fantastic. I'm going to ask you a quick question here, and it's off your uh, LinkedIn post that you have. What are the three most important relationships in business? Ah, great one. Yeah, so it's 
that really goes down to value proposition. And part of that we've talked about, the first relationship is who you serve. And pick an audience that you want to serve and don't worry about justifying the answer. No Miss America answers. If you want to help the richest people on the planet and you're passionate about it, fantastic. Get after it. If you want to help, you know, rock bands, doesn't matter. But get passionate about serving an audience. Your relationship with that audience is the first one. The second relationship is their relationship with you. They don't know you first. So first of all, that starts with their relationship with a need. They have needs, they have goals, they have pain points, they have problems they're trying to solve. That's the second relationship is what, what they need, what matters to them. And the third relationship is a combination of your credentials, your lived experience, your product or service features and offerings. But really, if we look at that second relationship, your ideal audience is asking a question. They're saying things like, there's gotta be another way. Or how can I solve this? Or who can I turn to? And that third relationship is how you and your value proposition is the answer to that question that your audience is asking. So those are the relationships. Your, your relationship with an audience, their relationship with you, and your value proposition as a relationship with their pain, their problems, and their goals. I loved, again, how you distilled that down. It makes it really clear for our listeners. Um, one final question on the kind of business side of things. How important is networking? Oh, I mean, it, it, if you sell trinkets, maybe it's not that important. I still think it is. In my business, it's absolutely vital. I mean, if I don't network, I'm out of business. I'm in a high trust business. Let's face it, David, I generate those outcomes we talked about. I've helped myself, my team. We've helped entrepreneurs grow their revenues by more than double in one year. Not just for startups, like for an established business, we've helped them more than double in a single year. So that is a high trust business. They're giving us the keys. They're you know, telling us the financials. Yeah, we sign NDAs and that kind of stuff, but they tell us their greatest fears their greatest hopes, their strengths and opportunities, their weaknesses, that is a very high trust business that we don't take lightly. That doesn't happen after a cold call. Correct. So networking is essential because in order to get to a place of high trust, I at least have to get to a place of familiarity and comfort. And to get there, it's not the first meeting. So I have to constantly be growing my network, and then actually being intentional with that network to get to good conversations. I mean, to get to the kind of conversation we're having right now doesn't take that long for a coach who hopefully I'm skilled and I'm certainly experienced. So you can create comfort quickly, but you don't do it over a cold call. So speaking at events, networking, you know, uh, growing my network of entrepreneurs and leaders, that is 100% by intention. It's one of the things I measure, as I mentioned, on my key metrics. And so networking for me is essential. And in 2021, by the way, the average North American is going to hear 10,000 marketing messages today. So the sea of noise, you can no longer compete unless you have the you know, marketing and advertising budget of Coca-Cola. Oh, totally. If you don't have that budget, then you got to be networking too, because people tend to shop with who they know, who they like, who they trust. And by the way, uh, almost 80% of all purchases today start with a referral. 
So David tells me he's looking for, you know, a new dentist, a haircut or whatever. He's going to talk to his network about who I trust and who I know. So that is why networking is so important is you got to get your name top of mind with more people. That happens by spending time with people and networking. We didn't actually talk about the executive coaching. Would you like to sort of allude to that a little bit, how you help existing businesses who are reasonably well-established? What are some of the practical things you can bring to the table? There's a number of ways, but we'll stick with one for right now that's related to some of the principles we've spoken to, and that's value proposition. We've, we've mentioned that in a number of ways. When you get to an executive level, when you are, you know, when you have a VP or a director or a C in front of your, you know, job title, at that point, then really, it's no longer about direct contribution. It's no longer about, you know, how many sales does Stan or David make? It's often about the impact you're having on others and being able to affect an entire organization. So that is self-awareness and that is value proposition. So a leader's value proposition is a very similar thing. You know, what are they passionate about? What's a industry or an organization they want to impact? What are the pain points, needs, gaps of that organization? And what is their lived experience, skills, and those kinds of things? So every leader has a value proposition, even if that leader is in their 20s on a rocket ship sort of career trajectory. The key is to find out what unique value that leader can bring. And that's what makes that person worth following. Because very junior leaders tend to make very similar mistakes and comes from an ego place, a place of insecurity. Quick example, one, uh, and of course, names, companies are always withheld, both for client confidentiality. It doesn't matter, good story, bad story, it always is confidential. Uh, it's just, it's a coaching or teaching moment. But there was a, a, a rather junior new sales leader that came into a territory with five, five or six very established sales leaders who were uh, responsible through multiple markets, but in that region, with about 10 million in annual revenue. That's what, they're, what they were bringing into the organization annually. So the new sales leader, who had not personally reached those levels of revenue or his fraction thereof, his or her, I should say, um, all of a sudden started giving advice to the team about here's what works for me, here's what I do. And guess how many of, that, of those six quit? Oh, the vast majority or at least half? All of them. All of them, there you are within about a six month radius. Yeah. And so if people are wondering, like, I don't have an RO, I don't have the budget for coaching. That's a worst case scenario. Well, of course, it could be always worse. But regardless, 10 million in annual revenue, that's the current state. Had they brought in a great coach, then whether from an executive or sales standpoint, then you could make a business case that we could have preserved the talent and grown the revenue. And if we had even grown the revenue 10%, we would have preserved the 10 million grown by a million instead of losing all that talent and shrinking revenues in each of those markets that led to all kinds of cost-cutting measures. So let's say that it dropped, and, and it, I think it dropped by half, but let's even say it dropped by 10%. You've got a $2 million swing. And it was way more than that. I don't know any coaches besides Tony Robbins that charge seven figures per year. So I don't care what you paid the coach, it would have been worth the money and then some to set that sales leader, because I wasn't a bad person, to set that sales leader up for success, getting them great coaching out of the gates. 
here's an example. Instead of coming in and saying, here's what I did, imagine if that new leader would have said, David, you're a rock star. You're great at what you do. You're selling more than a million bucks in your area. What can I do to make your job easier? What can I do to remove barriers that get in the way of you seeing even more success? That whole team would have called their direct manager or whatever and said, thank you for hiring so-and-so. They're the best boss I've ever had. That's a great statement because you become a servant to your team. I mean, that's what's important. And people don't realize that it's not about kind of, you know, telling them to do things. It is about leading from the front and showing by example, but being a servant at the same time. And I love that statement. What can I do to make your job easier, basically? That's why we have jobs as leaders. That's why we have jobs. I'd love to say that, you know, anywhere I've worked, the whole reason that I've been a boss is because I'm smarter than everybody else. It's absolutely not the case. You know, some of the smartest people that I've ever met have worked for me. And really, did I work? I think it's the other way around. I think in that case, you're in a support role. You support their growth. And this is not some kitschy, you know, play on words. It's true. Leadership is a responsibility. Leadership is an action way before it's a job title. Stan, I'd love to let the folks know how they can get a hold of you. So what's the best way of reaching out to Stan Peak? I'm very active on LinkedIn. That's probably the most active platform that I'm on. Uh, they can also, easiest email to remember is stan at getsuccessfaster.com. So yeah, stan at getsuccessfaster.com or they can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, I am always trying to share uh, inspiring content. I try to give as much value away as I can for free. If anyone's going to hire me, it's because they hopefully know that I know what I'm talking about. So LinkedIn is a great place where I share all kinds of articles that I've written, resources, all that kind of stuff. But, but in closing, thank you so much for the opportunity. A great discussion. I think we could have gone all day, but it's uh, <laughs> a lot to ask for the audience. <laughs> hey, before you go, uh, I have got that last question to ask you. If you're 18 again, what would you tell yourself? Oh, such a great question. And I think the biggest thing I would maybe change, I'd change very little because you could argue that changing anything would change your trajectory. But what I would tell myself at 18 is it's okay to fail. I, I think when you're young, you spend so much time trying to impress other people. You spend too much time thinking what other people might be thinking. And you think that if I fail, that's it. But as an entrepreneur, I know that if I can go back at 18, I would just have more dumb ideas and I would try them because if I failed, it wouldn't be fatal at that age. So that's what I would change. Well, thanks for that great advice. And, you know, that's the key area that a lot of people pick on now is that that failure is part of the learning process. So thank you so much for saying that. Really appreciate it. Stan, Pete, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I mean, you've been a total inspiration. Like I say, I, I saw ATB. Thank you for coming on on the uh, track with me as well today. Really oh, appreciate my it. My pleasure, David. Thank you so much. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Stan Peak, helping brilliant leaders one at a time build a better world. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. Thank you.